This is an AMI podcast. Good morning. It's Monday, January the 16th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, Ontario's former Lieutenant Governor David Onley passed away over the weekend. Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press and I will talk about that news story. And Twitter is planning to create an in-app currency for users. Mark Aflalo will ring you up and give you the scoop on that one. Alex Smythe will drop by for a conversation. Brock Richardson will be here for a sports chat. Lots of football to talk about with Brock, but also an update on the women's under-18 hockey championships. But let's begin the show with the top story of the day, and it's a healthcare conversation, and it's a bit of a mixed bag as you go across the country. BC health officials have offered an update on how the system is coping with a number of respiratory illnesses that are circulating. Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry says case numbers are leveling off. We look again at the many different sources of information and particular things like the wastewater surveillance, which is not dependent on testing, and it shows a slowing and a decrease across much of the Lower Mainland, which is in keeping with the same thing we're seeing in visits to clinics, in long-term care outbreaks, and in the testing data that we have. The B.C. government reopened its emergency operations centres last Monday to cope with an expected surge in cases. After the holidays, Health Minister Adrian Dix says those centres at 20 hospitals around the province will remain in operation for six weeks. Surgeries in British Columbia are being performed at a record pace. Health Minister Adrian Dix offered up some context. December 11th to 17th, Health Authorities completed 7,463 surgeries in a time when many of you and many people were reporting the challenges of the healthcare system. We are completing more surgeries than in any week at any time in the history of the healthcare system in British Columbia. Minister Dix says 99% of the surgeries postponed because of COVID have been completed. Over to Ontario, several hospitals are reporting record numbers in their emergency rooms. Grand River Hospital in Kitchener had 295 patients in its ER on Tuesday. Stuart Pavola, director of the emergency department at Grand River, says the ER was slammed. Tuesday, we saw 295 visits. So for context, our previous record was 269 visits. So we surpassed the previous record by not just a little bit, but a lot of bit. Queensway Carleton Hospital in Ottawa had 361 patients in the ER on Tuesday. That's a record for them. Yvonne Wilson, Vice President of Patient Care and Chief Nursing Executive at Queensway Carleton, says that's part of a broader trend. It certainly wasn't the record that we wanted to hit, having the uh, busiest day at the hospital in 47 years. But, you know, things have been building quite a bit, certainly through the fall. Premier Doug Ford is expected to make an announcement on healthcare later today. And over to Alberta, a Calgary facility that offers respite and end-of-life care to children is set to reopen. Dr. Jennifer McPherson, the the facility medical director at Alberta's Children's Hospital, says Rotary Flames House will be accepting patients again this week. We are really excited to be able to reopen the Rotary Flames House. Uh, we, we expect to resume full operations this coming week. And even as early as today, we're hoping to be able to admit uh, our first patient back to Rotary Flames. Staff had been redeployed to a pediatric hospital experiencing a patient surge. Let's switch gears here and talk about remote work. I want you to pay close attention to these next two stories because it will relate to the daily poll. Let's start here. Federal public servants are beginning their transition back to the office today. Karen Rebo has that story. Yu Tae Huang is a public servant in Ottawa who has been working remotely from his suburban Kanata home for nearly three years. He says since the announcement mandating at least a hybrid work arrangement for all to foster collaboration, his department heads have given him no information about when he is supposed to go back to the office. He says it's reasonable to go in two or three times a week, but for him, a two-hour daily commute on public transit is not worth it because his job doesn't have any in-person elements. Another hit 
pickup. An October briefing document for the procurement minister said some workplaces may not be equipped with adequate bandwidth to support video conferencing. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. And Karen has been all over the remote work beat, including this story about some of the ethical and logistical issues around remote work. Organizational psychologist and UBC Business School professor Sandra Robinson says a key reason employers are continuing with remote or hybrid work arrangements long after pandemic restrictions lifted is employee satisfaction. Yet, she warns, computer tracking software that allow employers to monitor workers' activity could backfire by eroding trust and ultimately output. Robinson says one of the best ways to build trust is by being trusting, which often gets reciprocated. The monitoring of people working from home, she says, could also create unrealistic standards of being on all the time, standards that aren't even upheld in many office environments. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. I told you to pay close attention to those two stories because they are going to relate to our daily poll. But before we get to today's, let's recap Friday's question, which you voted on at Accessible Media on Twitter and at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Friday, you were asked, do you favor wireless technology over wired technology? 25% of you said yes, and 75% of you said no. Not surprised by that one. Again, playing to some demographics here on our social media channels. For those of us who are blind or low vision, sometimes being wired in is a little bit nicer. That said, there does come a limit. When you've got wires uh, going in every which direction, it can get a little bit crazy. Today's daily poll, which again, you can find at Accessible Media on Twitter or at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. We're asking you, employees are using tra- tracking software to... It, woo, Dave, read English properly. Employers are using tracking software to monitor employees working remotely. How comfortable are you with that practice? Very, somewhat, or not at all? Alex, we have some room here. We can grapple with this one. So, Alex Smythe, mm-hmm. what do you think? Yeah, I think Karen Rebo is uh, kind of stealing some of my thunder on this one because I I'm kind of was going to echo what she, she ended up saying, you know, how it's like, I believe in having a office environment that's going to trust its employees. Now, obviously, there there can be certain circumstances where I think you you should be monitoring uh, your employees, but to do it that it's just oh, this is software that's going to track all your your activity online on your your computers, things like that. I'm not. I'm kind of against it. So, I, in that regard, I'm not at all in favor of it. Uh, but I'm somewhere between the somewhat and not at all. In, in favor because I, I believe there are limits to it. And especially if you have issues with certain employees, maybe it's like you, you're you already reviewing kind of what they're, uh, what they're doing on a work, uh, daily work basis, things like that. You can then start to see whether or not they are uh, fulfilling their job. But if an employee is doing a good job, fulfilling all their, their duties, their requirements, things like that, yeah, I, I don't think there's really much reason to monitor them, especially to when you have these kind of work from home uh, type models. Because as as Karen said in in her report, that you know a lot of these practices aren't really uh, kept or or used even if you're in the office. People just say, "Well, you're in the office." They're not monitoring what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You could just be present, and they see, "Oh, well, you're here, so I'm I'm going to assume you're you're doing your job," but that may not be the case. So, you know, it, it, can be, it can be an unfair uh, kind of pressure on those who work remotely. Well, I'll, I look at it this way. I, I land firmly in the somewhat comfortable camp, but there's all kinds of caveats that I want to attach yeah. to this. For example, if you are being asked to use a personal device to work remotely, then I would say, no, you should not be able to monitor me because this is my personal device. I don't give you the right to install the software on my personal computer to monitor me. If you want to be monitoring me like that, you have to send me a work computer or a work phone, et cetera, et cetera. You have to give me the equipment to do it. That said, as an employee, you have an obligation to be doing your job properly, which is not spending all day online shopping or chatting with friends or being on social media or doing whatever that is. And I think your employer has the right to say, hey, man, you were on your work computer uh, chatting away on Facebook, on Facebook Messenger for two hours yesterday when you were supposed to be working. That's, that's, like, that's time theft. I will also say this, though. There are some jobs that are much 
easier to do this with than others. And there's some where it's unnecessary. If you have daily deliverables or there's something that you have to do that can be measured in regard to output, then maybe being monitored doesn't matter so long as you're hitting your goals and deadlines. But then there are many, 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 many other jobs where the, it's a little more intangible what you're doing. There was that civil, serv civil servant story that I had uh, from Karen Rebo as well. Sometimes that's not so much about daily deliverables about, as about quarterly deliverables or, or like bi biannual deliverables. You know, the, it's, it's, it's a much more, it's a much more um, abstract way of doing work. There's not necessarily a concrete output. So in those cases, you may want to be monitoring people just to be like, okay, I gave you six months due to this project, but did you actually need six months? Maybe you could have done that in three if you weren't just like slacking off all day. So I, I'm, I'm one of these people who still believes in the merit of remote work. Obviously right now our team is on a hybrid model, but I do think that accountability still matters. And there is a feeling for some folks who are like, I'm outputting like crazy over here. Where is the output from everybody else? So I don't know, I don't know what you think about my caveats there, Alex. No, I completely agree, Dave. I think that is a very fair point. And I was kind of dancing around going into the specifics, but as I, because uh, I, I said too, it's like, if you're delivering and doing the job that you need to do, and, and you're hitting all your measurables, all your deadlines and everything, there shouldn't really be that need to be monitored all the time. But I, um, I, I think also employees are all very different and it depends on what the agreements are within your company because the thing is it's like if there is the option if you are a flexible or work at home arrangement and you can keep more flexible hours well then how is the monitoring going to work like uh, yeah, as, as yeah. that you know and if you're waiting on certain people or if it's about you know collaboration with other members of your team does it have to be well focus time it may not be eight hours of focus time here and maybe a couple hours here a couple hours there okay you're waiting for someone to get back to you but you're always within reach and you're always accessible then there could be uh, kind of uh, different levels to it like that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's get people's opinion on this one. You can vote at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook or at Accessible Media on Twitter. You're not limited to voting on social media, though. You can certainly get involved in the comment section or reply to the tweets or retweet with comments, or you can go off the social media board completely and send an email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca. That's the email address. If you put now with Dave Brown in the subject line, it gets to us a smidge faster. Also, if you prefer to use the phone, we encourage you to do that. 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509. 509-4545. You can leave us a voicemail. If you give us permission to play it on the air, that's exactly what we'll do. Again, always worth mentioning in the uh, preamble on your voicemail, this is supposed to go to Dave Brown or now with Dave Brown. That way the folks over on the marketing team can get it to us a little bit faster. At Accessible Media Inc. On, on Facebook, at Accessible Media on Twitter. That's where you can straight up vote on the polls. Let's go back to Alex. Alex has the national weather updates. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We're starting in St. John's, Newfoundland, where there's rain showers with up to four millimeters expected. There's also wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of five degrees. To Halifax, Nova Scotia, it is rain off and on today with possible thunderstorms in the afternoon. There's up to 25 millimeters of rain expected to fall and as you can expect as a result, there are rainfall warnings in effect. There's also wind gusts up to 70 kilometers per hour in certain parts of the area. So be mindful of that. The high for Halifax is nine degrees. To Montreal, Quebec, it is mainly sunny today. The high is minus four, but it's feeling quite cool with minus 21 with the wind chill. Over to Ottawa, Ontario, similar conditions. It's sunny, minus seven is the high, but with that wind chill, it feels like minus 27. Here in Toronto, Ontario, it's a mix of sun and clouds and it's clearing up later. The high is one degree and feeling like minus 10. Over to Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's cloudy with periods of snow throughout the day and up to four centimeters set to fall. The high is two degrees, feeling like minus eight. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, 
It's cloudy with a chance of snow or possible freezing rain. The high is minus seven and feeling like minus nine. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's cloudy with a chance of snow or freezing rain. There's also a fog advisory in effect due to heavy fog in the area. The high is minus six, oh sorry, minus eight and it's feeling like minus 15. In Calgary, Alberta, it is mainly cloudy and foggy as well. There's that fog advisory in effect for Calgary as well. And the high is minus one, but feeling like minus 11. Up in Edmonton, Alberta, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of snow in the morning. There's no fog in the area, which is good. It's high is minus three and that wind chill minus 10. Over to Yellowknife Northwest Territories, it's cloudy with a chance of snow and it is cooler, minus 16 being the high with a wind chill of minus 24. In Vancouver, BC, there's more heavy rain expected throughout the day. Up to 25 millimeters is set to fall. The high for today is seven degrees. And finally, in Victoria, BC, there's rain off and on today. The high, nine degrees. That's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up after the break, Canada's premiers are asking the federal government to reform the bail system. Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press will give you some insights on that story. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. People across Ontario are remembering former Lieutenant Governor David Onley after he passed away over the weekend. Michelle McQuig is the Weekend News Editor at the Canadian Press and has some insight on this story. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. Michelle, the, the remembrances are flowing in uh, fast and furious. There's a lot of media outlets have picked up on this story. How would you describe the reflection thus far? The reflection on David Onley has really been focused on something that I suspect as someone who interviewed him that he would be pleased to be remembered for, and that was his advocacy. Um, he was... Uh, he was a bit of he's seen as a bit of a trailblazer by some in the disability community. He was he was a physically disabled broadcaster long before he was the lieutenant governor in Ontario. And uh, in that time, well, initially uh, his employers tried to focus on his upper body and, and screen his his motorized scooter from from view. He would insist that that not be the case. That same kind of spirit kind of came to the fore when he was named the lieutenant governor, and he served in that role for about seven years, which is a pretty good long stint uh, in that kind of position. Um, he he had made accessibility a bit of an overarching theme during that time, mm. and his advocacy work continued in really prominent ways after that fact. And that's really what people have been focusing on as they reflect on his passing. They talk about uh, his 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 passion for the issue, his impatience for change, uh, the mm -hmm. fact that he was constantly trying to seek some answers. But there is a, there's also been a lot of really fond reflections. They talk about his compassion. Uh, they talk about his kindness. Um, it's a lot of really, really glowing tributes, actually, and really heartfelt ones have been coming out. There have been some really moving interviews published around this. So um, David only um, was certainly a, a very well-liked figure in those circles that had a chance to know him. Michelle, it, it's as if you read some notes that I jotted down this morning. Uh, words, <laughs> no, no, it's, it's true. W words like trailblazer uh, were absolutely there. He was a very, very public advocate for uh, accessibility and disability issues at a time oh, yeah. when it wasn't necessarily that common. You also totally, used yeah. the word kindness. I only had a chance to interview him once at an event at Carleton University, but it was a situation where we had a chance to go one-on-one -on -one a little bit after the event and spend some time in a very quiet room together. And kindness is what I thought of the whole time. He took such a keen interest in me and what I was doing as a young aspiring mm -hmm. broadcaster at the time. Um, totally. And it was less about him. Very similar, actually. I had a chance to interview him when he released a really important report that was not getting a lot of airplay. Um, this was done in 2019, and it was his independent review of uh, Ontario's accessibility legislation. And it was a really quite an explosive report. Not a lot of people gave it time. So I wanted to interview him about that. And we had a great interview, but he too, very similar, took a lot of interest in, in my career as, as a blind journalist at Canadian Press. 
just really seemed like a very approachable person. Uh, there was a really great interview I heard from CTV affiliate yesterday with it with one of his students because uh, mm. he he became a professor after the yeah, fact. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we heard a lot of different perspectives, all saying the same kind of things from different walks of life. So everyone from politicians, former colleagues, students, it it's, it spoke well of the man. Yeah, um, and and so. We're still waiting on details of when formal tributes can be made for those who might want to do that. Uh, there's indications that he's probably going to get a state funeral. Plans have not been announced yet, so stay tuned if that's something that you're interested in. Not that I'm uh, encouraging folks to walk away from our broadcast this morning, but a uh, regular contributor <laughs> on the show, president of Designable Environments, Thea Curdy, was actually on CBC Metro Morning uh, in Toronto today talking about David Onley as well. So nice to see uh, tributes being picked up all over uh, all over mass media, all over the city and all over the province. Michelle, For sure, and, and from people from the community he was trying to boost. Yeah, so that's absolutely. Nice, that's nice too. Um, Michelle, just, just staying with David Onley here for one more moment. I, sure. I, yeah. I, I, think you, I think you kind of answered it in the first question, but I'm going to put it out here sort of very literally. What do you believe his legacy is? Yeah, I, I do feel like we, we kind of circled around the main point of it and that it was his, his constant push to, to make things universally accessible. If you read the, his review of IOTA, a lot of his, his values and, and notions of accessibility, which are very much in line with what a lot of uh, our listeners would, would probably support in, in many ways, at least in the fundamentals, those are all really there. And that was his, his real tribute was the constant push for change, uh, the the genuine belief that disability rights and accessibility is a civil rights issue. Mm -hmm. uh, that's something he discussed with me at some length. And I think that's really how he's been seen and what his legacy will remain. He, I mean, it, it, the very fact that he was able to enter some of the spaces that he did enter spoke to some of the changes he was able to implement, mm -hmm. I'd say. I sense we'll end up reflecting on uh, David Onley a couple of times uh, this week. And certainly, as you say, Michelle, when more details are made aware of how people can pay formal tribute or if there's going to be some sort of state funeral, we'll make sure to pass those details along as well. But Michelle, let's shift gears here to uh, something that caught me by surprise over the weekend. Premiers are reaching out to the federal government to implement bail reform. So what are the premiers asking for? <laughs> yeah, you and me both, actually. Uh, th this was a letter that came kind of out of the blue on Friday for, for, for those of us who didn't know this was coming. It was quite a surprise. Um, it, it originated in Ontario Premier Doug Ford's office and eventually was signed by all 13 premiers, territorial and, prov and provincial premiers. They don't go really deep into what exactly they're asking for, but they do say that it's it, there's urgent need for bail reform and the time to act is now. Uh, the one real proposal that they kind of hint at in the letter is uh, a call to, <laughs> in certain cases, impose a reverse onus kind of standard. So rather than proving uh, why you shouldn't be out on bail, it's proving why you should. And, and that would be the presumption that you're oh, held. Uh, yeah, um, so that, that it is... That's one thing that's been kind of been hinted at, um, but the premiers generally, it, it's more of a general call really for, for reform. Um, there's been a lot of that kind of talk lately, as I'm sure some of you are aware. Uh, a lot of it crystallized around the recent death of an OPP officer in Toronto, uh, excuse me, in, in, um, in Ontario in, in late last in, month. In Southwest Ontario, yeah. Yeah, it, Ingersoll, yeah. yeah. So it could, because that, that, that was a case that sort of was the, kind of crystallized everyone's worst case scenarios about these kinds of things. It was a, a case of, the officer was allegedly ambushed uh, by someone who had been charged in a number of cases with, with weapons offenses and was out on bail. Uh, he'd skipped hearings. It, it was honestly exactly what you envision when you think about a worst case scenario mm, for this sort of thing. Mm. And that's really what's driven a lot of call for reform, but it's not unique to that case. And, it's and worth noting. Yeah, the Saskatchewan was, stabbings were another one. Too, yeah, that's it. It's, it's like, yeah. it's like we're sharing a brain today because certainly that was, that was because <laughs> that was a conversation that was crystallizing around Saskatchewan stabbing as well about, about how Miles Sanderson's bail case was being handled. Exactly right. So yeah, so uh, driven in part by these really high profile cases that have been quite recent, but it's this is not a new conversation. In fact, the ministers allude to the fact that this was on the agenda when all the justice ministers got together at some point last mm. year. So uh, interesting to see what will come of that. We didn't have much by way of response this weekend. <laughs> I was, uh, was going to say a letter, a letter that drops on Friday, not likely to get a lot of government response over the weekend. Yeah, yeah governments are not known for their uh, weekend responsiveness rates. So, <laughs> But it, it will be interesting to see in the coming days how that comes, because a, a letter signed by all 13 premiers, including one who was, had just taken office over the weekend, mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's kind of an unusual step. It's, it's pretty striking. So I'd be interested to see what the prime minister have to say or... or uh, David Lametti, yeah. uh, the um, 
the Justice Minister. I'm I'm yeah. I'm gonna have a clip from the Yukon's new premiere in the next segment uh, from the swearing-in ceremonies. So uh, courtesy yeah, Ron, of my colleague Brianna Charlebois. There, there we so. go. There we go. Uh, <laughs> Michelle, I, I, apologies if I'm diving maybe just a bit too deep here, and you can tell me to leave it, and I can go I can go uh, find an <laughs> academic on this one. But when we're talking about bail reform, this seems like it's maybe a swing one way. How does this? Because because advocates have been asking for reform for a while as well. How does this jive with what advocates are asking for? Because it, it seems almost like the flip side of what we're hearing from advocates saying we need more lenient bail policies. Yeah, I, 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 you, you might have to consult someone with more expertise on this, but I will say that what is interesting too is that the government's own stance is, is kind of coming under challenge here because a new law with some bail reforms was implemented just a couple of years ago. I'd actually completely forgotten about this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so some of those uh, some of the, those changes actually were a little bit more in line with what we would hear more progressive kind of advocates calling for. There, there's you know it's, it's codified the fact that judges should be considering the circumstances of let's say some indigenous people or people of color, people with more were uh, more challenging backgrounds. Um, it's asked people to try and, and go with the scenario that would get people out as fast as possible uh, under the right circumstances. There's all kinds of legal uh, lingo around all this, mm-hmm. but essentially they were. Uh, I do feel that those reforms probably would have reflected more of what we would probably hear from a lot of advocates, but I'm not sure exactly where the conversation stands right now. This is the thing about a Friday news dump. Sometimes it's tough to get all the analysis we need over the course of a couple days because people are too busy hanging out with me at the bar eating chicken wings. Um, Michelle, let's jump to one more story here. And this was more of a feature, but the the Lunar New Year is a few days away. But there was a feature this weekend put out by one of your colleagues about some of the marketing going on around the holiday. What was the gist of the story? Yeah, my colleague Brett Bundale, who does a lot of our retail reporting, um, it's great work, very worth checking out. And this is a really good piece that she did. Um, so what what she kind of anecdotally noticed and then checked in with experts and, and confirmed as a thing is a rise in overt marketing campaigns focused on Lunar New Year. Um, in, some years ago, even a couple decades ago, those kinds of things were pretty sparse and, and more confined to sort of niche retailers. But now you've got like, well, Renfrew offering a tea event, uh, Hudson's Bay carrying all kinds of Lunar New Year branded products, uh, even lower budget stores carrying things, let's say, with the Zodiac's animal of the year and 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 things like that. Mm. Um, a lot of, and, and some stores have set up websites sort of focusing their usual products, but under a Lunar New Year marketing banner, the way you would sometimes see around, let's say, Christmas or, or, or Hanukkah. Um, so this is uh, this is viewed with, with a certain amount of cynicism within the Asian Canadian community, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, a lot of them see this as, as kind of exploitative. Uh, the fact that it can be is sometimes done as a very transparent marketing ploy with no real effort to to have any kind of respect for the the culture that they're trying to capitalize on here. Um, but there are some other approaches that seem to find a little bit more favor. Uh, one retail example that Brett found was, was Aritzia, who is putting out a line of Lunar New Year branded products, but it was done in collaboration with Asian artists. Mm-hmm. So that kind of thing um, is viewed a little bit differently. By and large, though, most people would kind of liken it, I'd say, to, to greenwashing or rainbow washing, uh, the kind of trends that we've seen before when people try to capitalize on a social justice issue. Yeah, that, and Taylor there. Yeah, that yeah. was that was one of the comments uh, that was right off the top in the feature. Someone saying it kind of feels a little bit like rainbow washing or a little bit like greenwashing. That said, I think at this point, it's just kind of common practice in the retail space to be like, it's St. Patrick's Day, sell some green stuff. It's Valentine's Day, sell some arts. It's Pride Month, sell some rainbow stuff. But I but I do but I do acknowledge here that like the, the maybe the fundamental different point is is when we're talking about inclusion more broadly about underrepresented communities, I can see how maybe it might rub somebody the wrong way to say, this is a little too blatant. For sure. And the flip side, of course, would be that some people might say, hey, it's really great that Lunar New Year is getting recognition at all in ways that it wasn't necessarily before, and it's becoming a bit more mainstream. Uh, So there are different schools of thought on this for sure. Um, But it's it's an interesting issue, and it it certainly is interesting to hear about some of the campaigns that I certainly don't recall seeing in my uh, my childhood or teenage years. So yeah, there, there definitely is a change, and it's it's pretty cool that Brett was able to uh, to explore it to some degree. But yeah, it's an interesting issue. And, and the whole conversation of when is there not some kind of special sale time, I feel, is another, <laughs> for another day. But that's, yeah. that's, another, that's another more cynical theory in all this too, right? Some, some retail analysts are speculating that they're doing this because 
they just came off the busy uh, Christmas and Boxing Day season, and now they're a bit of a sales lull, and they want to kick things back up again a mere month after all the Boxing Day rush. Uh, so that's another slightly more. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Uh, Listen, we had Black Friday. We had Cyber Monday. We had Christmas shopping. We had Boxing Day. We had New Year's sales. And now we get yeah, now we get and, the Lunar New Year sales. And like you said, now then we'll be into Valentine's Day sales or Family Day sales or who knows. The Family like, Day like, sales. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's one for sure. Michelle, it, it, it does make me think of the Bo Burnham line in honor of the revolution. It's half off at the gap. You know, I, I think I think I think maybe that's the thought we can leave this segment with. Uh, Michelle, have a great day. Thank I you. Can't top that for sure. <laughs> Thank you for all the hard work you and your colleagues do over the weekend that allows me to eat chicken wings and drink beer and watch football. So all the best to you, and we'll talk to you in the news panel on Friday. We aim to please. Thanks very much, Dave. <laughs> That's Michelle McQuig, the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up next, it's the regional news update. But first, here is Canadian Press reporter Karen Rebo with your morning business minutes. Canada's main stock index will open the new trading week on the heels of last week's nearly 3% gain. Toronto's TSX index rose 148 points to close on Friday at 20,360. In New York, the Dow Jones average gained 112 points and the Nasdaq added 78. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index fell 297 points and our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 74.60 cents U.S. This week, we'll see retail sales released in both Canada and how the consumer fare during the holiday shopping season. Canada's data on retail trade will cover November. Canadian inflation data will also be released tomorrow, ahead of an all but certain 25 basis point interest rate hike next week. Also coming up this week, we'll get home sales information for both the Canadian Real Estate Association and Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Switching things up a little bit for you today. So let's get to the regional news updates. Beginning in the territories, the 10th Premier of Yukon has officially taken office. Ranj Pillai was sworn in on Saturday. Premier Pillai wants to represent the whole territory. I will lead a government for all Yukoners. I will work to make sure the public service is working with the people of the Yukon to make their lives better. I will keep our focus on the whole territory, on all communities. No one in the Yukon should feel left behind by our government or not represented. Palai reflected on the wide range of demographics in the territory. Whether your ancestors have been here since millennia, your family were pioneers during the gold rush, or you moved here yesterday, this government is here and will serve you. We are partway through our current mandate, and we have made many important changes to improve the lives of Yukoners. And our work is not complete. Pillai was a deputy premier and has held numerous cabinet posts. Over to British Columbia, one of Vancouver Island's most iconic hotels has cracked a global list of the world's most haunted destinations. Victoria's Fairmont Empress is featured in Condinasta Traveler's list of 44 most haunted hotels in the world. It is said to be haunted by the ghost of the hotel's architect, Francis Rattenbury. The publication says Rattenbury left his wife for a younger woman and fled to England, but was later bludgeoned by her new lover. The architect's spirit is said to have returned to the Empress Hotel, where it's been spotted on the lobby staircase. Over to something a little bit more serious, into the prairies. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will be in Saskatoon today. He's scheduled to visit a rare earth's element processing plant with the city's mayor, Charlie Clark. The group of 17 metals and minerals known as rare earth elements are among other minerals being prioritized for investments as part of Canada's critical mineral strategy announced by Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson last month. Critical minerals were also among the issues Trudeau, U.S. President Joe Biden, and Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador discussed during their summit last week in Mexico. And in Ontario, Toronto public transit is getting more expensive. Brenda Molina Navidad has the details. The increase brings single cash fares to $3.35. The TTC is also reducing some services to address a $366 million budget shortfall. 
It's another hit to consumers who are already paying higher cost of living expenses due to inflation. Public transit systems across Canada have been grappling with revenue shortfalls due to the COVID-19 pandemic, and in many cases, reduced ridership has been slower to rebound than anticipated. But experts say these kinds of solutions could create the potential for continuous financial problems and cuts. Brenda Molina Navidad, The Canadian Press, Toronto. In life, you sometimes have to accept that prices will rise. That's part of the nature of the gravitational pull of the economy. And certainly with something like public transit, which is a public good, you understand why it really stinks to have the price go up. And I agree with you there. It definitely is going to disproportionately impact people on lower incomes. Here's what I want to mention, though, as sort of picking at a thread I don't like the number 335. 325 was a great number. A loony, a toony, quarter, you drop it in the bucket, away you go. You're telling me if I don't want to carry a Presto card around with me anymore, I've got to start carrying dimes with me? Dimes? No, those go into my Miami Dolphins piggy bank, and then once a year I give them to my niece. That's where my dimes go, not into the bus fare bucket. I, it's one of these things where I'd almost say raise it to 350. Let's deal with quarters, not dimes. Loonies, toonies, quarters. Everything else, Miami Dolphins piggy bank. That's the way of the world. <laughs> Staying in Ontario, the Ontario government is estimating the province could be short 8,500 registered early childhood educators by 2026. Here once again is Brenda Molina Navidad. That's when parents will be paying $10 a day on average for childcare, and the province expects to have added 86,000 new spaces to meet the increased demand that will come from the lowered fees. Ontario is starting workforce consultations with people in the childcare sector on Monday, and slide decks obtained by the Canadian press show the government expects 14,700 new registered ECEs will be needed. But without further steps to address recruitment and retention. They say Ontario will be about 8,500 short. Brenda Molina Navidad, The Canadian Press. Well, you have three years and the ECE programs at most colleges are two years. So this should be doable, although maybe you actually have to, you know, pay people living wage. That would also be super helpful. Over to Atlantic Canada. Newfoundland and Labrador's health minister says a government's priority this year is the implementation of a health information system. Tom Osborne says the system will help with communication between various areas of the province by removing the paper-based system that's currently in place. As things stand, the files of patients who are transferred from one area of the province to another have to be printed off and sent to a health authority because their current systems cannot communicate with each other. Osborne says a new system should also improve a patient's access to their own files. That's your look at the regional news. Coming up after the break, Amy Amanti reviews the Netflix psychological drama, The Wonder, starring Florence Pugh. But first, Sony is working on a car. Mike Dubowski has this latest in Tech Trends. It's been a year since Sony announced a partnership with Honda to develop electric vehicles, and now the two companies are pulling the wraps off the Afila prototype. It's a very different looking car than what they rolled out three years ago, despite the fact that it shares the same sort of idea of a sedan layout. Auto Week editor Natalie Neff says Sony has integrated its own tech into the car with sensors set up for level three autonomous driving and even an exterior screen between the front headlights that can display information to other drivers. Neff says Honda brings manufacturing and sales expertise to the project, but Honda needs Sony too. Where Honda has not had a great deal of leadership over the last few years is in the EV space. Afila is expecting to have cars on the road by 2026. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. There are many movie genres, and some can get pretty specific. Psychological period drama. Okay, I, I think I get it, but it's still a lot of buzzwords there. There's a new one on Netflix that's getting positive reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. It's called The Wonder, and it stars Florence Pugh, and Amy Amanti is here to review it. Hey, good morning, Amy. How are you? 
Hey, good morning, Dave. I'm doing wonderful, thanks. How are you this I'm morning? I'm well, I'm well. You're surviving any more at atmospheric rivers out there? Uh, I think they have become our new norm out here in BC. <laughs> yeah, just lots and lots of rain, just lots and lots of raincoats, no shortages of those in the Vancouver, BC area. Amy, let's uh, turn to the wonder here. Before mm -hmm. we start grappling with how the movie was, what's it about? Okay, well, uh, transport yourself back. Here's the period part, right? Set in 1862. Oh, boy. Just, yeah, just after the Great Famine in Ireland. And so uh, our main character, as you mentioned, Elizabeth, uh, um, sorry, uh, Pew, plays Elizabeth Wright, who is uh, an English nurse. And she was uh, part of the Crimean War. And she's sent to a rural village in Ireland where she's tasked with closely watching um, Anna O'Donnell. And Anna is an 11 year old girl who is considered a fasting girl. So we'll get into that in a minute. So the fasting girl declares that she has not eaten for more than four months. And there seems to be no uh, toll on her body, which is odd. Anna claims that she is um, receiving life sustainment from manna from heaven. But Nurse Wright has to decide whether this is fraud or a miracle. Okay, all right. I'm, I officially uh, understand what we're talking about here. So as the film is described as a psychological drama, mm -hmm. do you think that fits the bill in the way it was presented? Yeah, I mean, uh, when I think about psychological dramas, I think more about, I don't know, like, crime or murder mystery type psychological dramas yeah so yeah. this yeah i mean i think that this this ticks that box for sure but i think that um i was i was expecting something different um i think the psychological piece comes in the fact that we are trying to figure out again whether this is a scientific um i don't know outlier or whether this is uh a miracle from god right and so the the idea that your mind is trying to grapple with is it isn't it is it isn't it isn't isn't it is constantly running through you as you're watching this movie let's talk about the performances what did you think of florence Pugh's performance yeah florence Pugh, who plays elizabeth wright who is our uh, our nurse from england um i thought really compelling really compelling work um i I haven't seen Florence Pugh in a lot of things, but she's an up and coming. Uh, she's done a lot of work in, in Europe. M many of the actors in this are, are European or British based actors. And so haven't done a lot of American content, uh, but she is um, uh, going to be starring in the second, the sequel of the Dune movies coming yes. out. So I know, right? So I think uh, we're going to see a lot of great things to come from, from Florence Pugh, a lot more great things to come, but really, really compelling in this piece. I'm counting down the days till the Dune sequel comes out. I believe it's next year. It's uh, due out. So we still have a while to wait for Denny. It's Vendor's a lot of X's on your calendar, Dave. A lot of X's on my calendar. through an advent calendar for Dune. A lot of chocolate tea between now and then. Uh, who else stood out performance-wise in the film? Yeah, so uh, certainly the young woman who plays Anna O'Donnell uh, is named Ky Kyla Lord Cassidy. Um, also a very UK-centric actress. And uh, she is... A young actress and so i think you know there's two ways that that young stars can go right they can go uh really prominent and move forward in their careers and be adult stars or they can kind of go to the wayside and be a uh flash in the pan kind of but i think this particular young lady um, because she is quite reserved in this piece and quite um uh she's very patient and that comes through really nicely with this particular character because there is a relationship to god here right and mm. so um it's quite interesting to watch there's a little bit of magic within so i really really enjoyed um kyla in this this piece so yes there's magic and spirituality here but there is some speculation that there is a true story or a folk legend behind this what did you learn about the background on this film yeah 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 so this was super interesting to me because i hadn't thought about this uh until i did some research so there is a very famous story about a fasting girl named sarah jacobs uh and sarah jacobs was again fasting for many many months and at the end uh, her parents were uh, found guilty of manslaughter because ultimately she died. 
Um, and, and this is, there has been sort of a series of fasting girls throughout history. So we're, I mean, this is 1869, right? Um, when, when this particular story took place and that was a, that was a, a true story, but fasting girls have been sort of revered throughout this time period and watched by, they're referring to them as jailers, right? But watched really by jailers um, to make sure that they're not eating because they say they're not eating and they die. Um, so this particular story, The Wonder, is actually an invented story based on this sort of concept of the fasting girl. But it was inspired by um, very this very real phenomena. And I think what was interesting about this for me is that the writer, who is M Emma Donahue, she didn't base the novel on a particular person, but more this unexplained phenomenon of events, mm. a series of events, and then chose to set it in her hometown of Ireland. Uh, um, that's where Emma is from because of the religious piece that she could bring to this particular story. Um, what I thought was fascinating, the, the, the Irish Catholicism piece. Yeah, I unpack that further, Amy. Obviously, when you're talking about a story in Ireland in the 19th century, Catholicism mm -hmm. is going to be seeping into that story. What did you make of that angle? I, I, I would like to say that I was tentatively expecting this, knowing that this was based in Ireland in this time period, that there was going to be some kind of Catholicism piece. What I thought was really interesting was how um, how there was a so in this story there's a committee of people formed doctors, uh, priests, community members to try and fact find this particular you know to, because some of them think it's a miracle and some some of them think it's science. So from a from a psychological perspective of the viewer, the Catholicism piece is really interesting because you are trying to figure out for yourself whether somebody who hasn't eaten for four months is a miracle, right? Like it, it defies, defies convention, divide, it de Devise, I go, Dave, I'm losing my words this morning. <laughs> it's, it's, de uh, it's definitely 6 a.m. on the West Coast. It's so 6 a.m. on the West Coast you. here. It defies science. Yes, right? nailed like it. Like there's, the, it absolutely defies science. And so for me, I was, I was on the edge of my seat wondering where they were going with this mm. because I couldn't, I, I'm not, I, <laughs> my family has Italian Catholicism in it, but I don't subscribe to religion. So for me, I'm thinking, where are they going with this? Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and so, but, but knowing that it's set in, in the 19th century means that those folks really believe that there's a miracle here. Yeah. And that came through in a very compelling way for me, uh, to which I almost was buying into that myself. Wow. Truly. Okay. Okay. So you were psychologically thrillered and on the edge of your seat. It worked for you. Okay. Thrillered, thrilled, whatever. Yeah, the way, whichever way we want to play with grammar. Amy, we've talked about the importance of audio description generally, yeah. and we've talked about it specifically for these kinds of films, when there could be more going on on screen than meets the ear. So how was yes. the audio description in The Wonder. Again, I'm going to say that this is another film where there's a lot of things that happen in silence, and so it's really important to have some of the audio description there. Um, I, I'm choosing my words carefully, Dave, because I don't want to give away the ending of Please this, don't. Of this Please film, don't. right? Um, so, but what happens in silence needs to be conveyed to our audience. Otherwise, we miss out on 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 the on the beauty truly the beauty of this story and and the um uh how they've tied this piece together which i think is quite unexpected so if you had not had the audio description you would have been completely lost on all of those pieces and i also think that there's some really nice phrasing it's something i'm paying more attention to in audio description like we can start every sentence with the name of the character or they do this they do that they do this they do that but when an audio describer takes the the time to put together really interesting sentence structures and mm. picks really interesting verbs i'm so glued to that and I feel like I'm not like that I'm not even listening to audio description. So I think there was a really nice balance here with this description. Poetry and art, right? Poetry yeah, and art I think as, so. as part of a broader piece of art makes a lot of sense. Okay, Amy, here's some stats for you. On Rotten mm -hmm. Tomatoes, the critic reviews are giving this 87% positive. The average audience rating, 72%. So how would you rate this? Are you with the elitist critics or are you with the plebeians <laughs> like me? Oh, I think I'm with the elitist critics on this one, Dave. I gave this one a nine and a half for me. I thought Ooh. it ticked, I know, it ticked a lot of boxes. I was uh, pleasantly surprised. I was unexpected for me. And um, and I, I like this kind of period piece. So for me, it ticked a lot of boxes that I was expecting to, um, 
to receive in a film that I would like pleasantly watch a second or third time. Right on. Hey, Amy, thank you for this. Hey, thanks for your patience on a 6 a.m. morning in Vancouver. A little <laughs> off my game today, but uh, we, we pulled it off, Dave. You know what? Even <laughs> I can't even talk right at 10 a.m. Eastern, so so we're all we're all in the same boat here, Amy. That's Amy Amanti, a movie reviewer in Vancouver, B.C., with a review of The Wonder, which you can find on Netflix. Let's wrap up the hour with a couple of news stories. Oh yeah. The news panel theme, we're going to do a little chatting over here. The U.S. Secretary Janet Yellen has notified Congress that the country is projected to reach its debt limit later this week. Reporter M. Wynn has the latest. The deadline is in just five days, and Secretary Yellen says raising the debt ceiling does not mean more spending, but rather just allows the government to finance existing obligations, including tax refunds, military salaries, Social Security, and Medicare payments. If Congress doesn't act soon, Yellen says the Treasury Department will have to take, quote, extraordinary measures to avoid defaulting on the nation's more than $31 trillion borrowing capacity. If the issue drags on, it could lead to a partial government shutdown. The U.S. is expected to hit that ceiling on Thursday. Coming back to Canada for more economic stories, economists from the big banks held a panel over the weekend. The consensus? The economy as a whole is outperforming their projections. Scotiabank chief economist Jean-François Pichot says that Canada is in a good position even if a recession hits. It's a worrisome thing in the sense that maybe it means you have higher rates to achieve the economic impact that you want to. But the flip side of that is, you know, maybe this kind of holy grail of a soft landing is, you know, it's like it's no longer mythical that we might actually engineer that. TD Chief Economist Beata Karachi reflected on what a recession might mean for job numbers. Our own forecast, we, we have about 100,000 job losses occurring this year, which will not be mild for about 100,000 and their family uh, if it occurs. However, that is a third of what would normally occur in a recession. Stats Canada will release its inflation data later this week. And one more story for you. Royale Lepage has real estate its housing price data. Don Kelly takes a closer look. The real estate company says the median aggregate price of a home was $757,100 in the final quarter of last year, down 2.8% from the end of 2021. Home prices fell last year as mortgage rates pushed higher, driven by the Bank of Canada's interest rate hikes to fight inflation. Royal LePage says the national aggregate home price in the fourth quarter of last year was up 13.8% from the same quarter in 2020 and up 17.2% from the fourth quarter of 2019. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press, Toronto. You know I went on a big long rant last week talking about the way home prices are presented, so there is an objective fact for you. Year over year, December to December, 2.7% price decline. Not 17%, not 25%, not dealing with volume data. The raw number of the average price down 2.7%. The sky not exactly falling in the way that some pundits would like you to believe. Coming up after the break, we'll get to the sports chat with Brock Richardson. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.